Greetings, everyone. Ronnie Landis here, and welcome to another episode of the official Ronnie Landis podcast show. I'm also the founder of the Holistic Health Mastery Certification Course. You can find more information about that at holistichealthmastery.com. And I also want to take this moment to share one of the most extraordinary nutritional product slash natural supplements that I've ever come across. It's a product from a company called Ojai Energetics. And my friend William Clyden is one of the world's leading experts and visionaries when it comes to all things hemp and specifically CBD rich hemp oil. And the product that he came out with recently in the last year or two years is a CBD product that is highly deliverable, it's highly absorbable, and it's highly potent. And it's a product that has blown me away. And I swear, at least every day it seems like somebody is messaging me on Facebook, somebody is sending me an email, somebody is cornering me in a health food store, and they're asking me where they can get the most potent and the most effective CBD-based products possible. And for a long time, I couldn't actually answer this this question because although there were a lot of CBD products out there, there weren't very many that I could hang my hat on as a recommendation because I just felt like energetically they weren't quite coherent. They weren't quite in resonance. There was something missing. They hadn't quite cracked the code, but Ojai Energetics has cracked the code on the CBD administering um, within the product that they've created. It it is incredible. And I have actually noticed shifts in my cognitive awareness, my neurological function, my ability to modulate my stress response, mood upliftment, anti-inflammatory properties. Everything that CBD is associated with is in this particular product from Ojai Energetics. So I want to put out a plug for them, and you can find this product. And they actually have a number of CBD-based products. They have a topical coconut oil-based product that drives the fat-soluble CBD compound directly into the epidermal layers of the skin. And then they have a sublingual product, which you just take as a dropper, and goes into the mucous membranes of your saliva and goes right into your bloodstream. You can find those products at highpotencycbd.com. Again, highpotencycbd.com. Enjoy that. Now, on with today's show. Today's show is with a very good friend of mine, Emma Juniper Clare. And wow, what an incredible what an incredible conversation this was. Emma is an emotional freedom coach. And the work that she does is multidimensional, but she really has worked a lot to help women specifically overcome and transcend their emotional blockages or the emotional holding patterns that each one of us has really had imprinted onto us. So for example, the trauma points or the trigger points, the emotional reactivity that has been encoded into our electromagnetic field, it's been encoded into our energy body, and also gets encoded into the physical tissues of the body over time if we don't deal with the emotional and psychological issues that we have from earlier on in our childhood. And Emma's work is incredible, and this conversation was incredible. We really went to the depth of this subject, and we pulled out a lot of really practical and easy-to-apply tactics and strategies that Emma's employed employed in her own life, and she's helped numerous, numerous clients um, out there in the world as she travels around the world. She's traveling around the world quite often doing this amazing work. She's helped so many people release themselves from the bondages of emotional holding patterns and traumas that nobody really wants. We don't want to be living out our past experiences in our per, in our consistent experience day in and day out, and that's really the work that she does. So I'm really excited to 
invite you into this interview that we did together. And uh, what else can I say? Enjoy. Emma Juniper is an emotional mastery and authentic confidence expert, as well as a transformational retreat facilitator. She assists visionary leaders in achieving inner liberation and accelerating purpose-filled success. Emma's teachings were created primarily from her rapid self-empowerment journey after an intense abusive relationship resulting in trauma triggers, codependency, and floundering in emotional overwhelm. Today, she facilitates worldwide retreats, online courses, group coaching, and workshops to rapidly transform drama, stress, and confusion into magic, ease, and liberation. Additionally, she is the CEO of Kedua, an artisan alchemy company in Sedona. She is a mystic priestess of soul awakening empowerment who passionately designs powerful breakthrough experiences for her clients both in the U.S. and internationally. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I love the the fiery energy of your presentation. Absolutely. Well, that's kind of part and parcel to my presentation. What an interesting way to phrase it. I guess my presentation here on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) The way that you present yourself to the world. That's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, right? Because... We're all seeking to authentically express who we are, right? And oftentimes that comes with a lot of caveats, a lot of connotations, a lot of filters that have been set up for us or that we've self-inflicted upon ourselves growing up in quite a confusing world. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I, I love your level of authenticity. Yeah, well, it's been a process, right? Um, you know, for me, in that in that sense, um, I've always had that spark of what I now call like God or genius that has been voicing to me as a young child, but didn't necessarily have the traditional family nucleus, the the male guidance, the rites of passage that were presented to me. I think I actually, growing up, I sought out rites of passages, um, but didn't really know what that was. I just kind of mm-hmm. was seeking around um, to find who I was and to, like, where do I fit in, into this world? And uh, yeah, now I can definitely say through that alchemy, um, I've gotten closer to that and, uh, it's like people like you that are doing this work and bringing forth these wisdom teachings that I think helps each person do exactly that. Mm, for sure. Most definitely. Yeah. So, uh, what I'd like to jump into with you first is what originally sparked your interest and your passion for the emotional mastery work you do? Mm, good question. Okay. I'm going to see see if I can give you a, a concise answer. There's so many so many catalysts that really sparked that interest. But I'll start with when I was, actually when I was 12, I went on a five-week safari to Africa. And that's what sparked and catalyzed my intense passion for changing the world. And I spent 10 years focused on um, environmental sustainable development, and that's what was my focus um, with all my research projects and in school and speaking at the United Nations. And I completely burnt myself out. So, t- fast forward 10 years later, I was graduating college, and my parents were expecting me to go into you know some sort of sustainability field. And I had burnt myself out to the extent that um, you know I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't taking care of myself, I was really just focused on. Um, trying to be good enough for myself and for the planet and also just trying to be good because I felt like I was inherently guilty for being human um, based on what I was seeing that humans were doing to this planet. And um, I decided at that point that I was going to learn how to become healthy and happy. And I was going to focus on that. Um, well, this is my explanation to my parents was I'm going to focus on that for you know one to three years. And once I figure out how to be happy and healthy, then I'll be happy and healthy for the rest of my life and can continue in the sustainability field. Um, I did, well, what might seem like the opposite of focusing on being healthy and happy is I immediately got into an abusive relationship. And that really uh, woke me up and catalyzed um, my transformation. 
in study for the last, I guess now 11 years, um, no, eight years since the relationship or nine years now, um, around emotions and abuse cycles and mental mastery. So the abusive relationship, um, even while I was in it, I was, it was kind of like a fast track, um, program in learning how emotions and insecurities and abuse and PTSD all fit together. And then I started studying that much more intensely after the abusive relationship so that I could get myself back on track. Yeah, beautiful. And I feel like a lot of people can very intimately relate to what you're sharing. I know that I can. Um, and a lot comes up out of that. You mentioned PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, and this is one of the things that I put my magnifying glass on from the perspective that you, you have the exacerbated example of the real clinical PTSD. If someone has a serious trauma, um, um, we know of people that come back from war, obviously, and they're totally physiologically and psychologically traumatized. Yeah. And so there's a, but there's all different kind of layers because then we often discount people in their day to day lives. And I feel like there's micro fragments of that, that trauma, that, that PTSD that crystallizes in our body over time and becomes a part of us or, or maybe more so we associate as it. And that mm -hmm. affects us as we go through life. For sure. And, you know, for the first year, I didn't think that I had PTSD because I also, you know, thought, oh, that's a, something that war veterans have. Mm -hmm. um, and so for a year, I really just kind of thought I was crazy or that I, you mm. know, had some sort of mental, I don't know, disorder of some sort. And I've definitely found that to be highly prevalent is that uh, most people who have a form of PTSD don't think that that's what it is. And that misinformation um, it actually really, really saddens me um, and also sparks a lot of fiery passion around sharing even just the very basics of it. The um, majority of people who come to me in, in whatever form, whether it's um, online or, or to the retreats, do have some um, PTSD triggers. And so um, even sharing what goes on on the biochemical level and the basics of what PTSD is has been incredibly empowering for so many people. And it could just be that they got up on stage and everybody laughed at them. And that means that they freeze up when they're going to go on stage. I mean, that's a form of PTSD. Um, and it's not something that's just for humans. You know, that's the same thing. Trauma is stored in the nervous system and the biochemistry um, of other animals. And they have the same response of they freeze or, um, you know, fight, flight, or freeze being the three options on a biochemical level. Absolutely. I think that's a really brilliant point. You know, when I think of animals, um, domesticated animals, they often take on the same diseases or inhibitions as the humans. Um, and we can obviously relate that to diet and all that kind of thing. But, you know, we forget that um, animals are emotional creatures. And when you get close with an animal and you build that bond, there's a, there's a soul connection. You can see their personality in their eyes, in their, their level of life, the same way you can with a human, really, right? So um, I think that's a really brilliant point. Yeah, and, and uh, it's actually um, um, one of the things that sparked, I believe his name is David Berselli, who has a book called Trauma Release Exercises. And just from the information that I read in his book and many of the workshops at the very beginning when I was just discovering actually what PTSD is, um, that... Um, it, he he was sparked by looking at how animals respond to trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to give just a very brief background on on what PTSD is in terms of the system. So any of the listeners you know, have a, a foundation here. So basically, when when any sort of trauma happens, um, where the body feels the body the the whole being feels like they might somebody might be unsafe, then or you're in danger in some way, then your body will um, record through the sensory mm -hmm. system what's going on around you. So what are the sounds, the visuals, the, the touch sensations, what are the smells, and records it in the senses, not in the memory so much, but in the senses so that in the future, if any of those, that same smell, that same sound, that same visual, that same kind of touch happen, 
then the body knows that it's in danger again and or thinks it's in danger again. It's highly unlikely that it actually is in danger again. Um, but what the, the body then does is it contracts the psoas forward so that it can protect the vital organs and put you into fetal position. And it also um, shuts down, basically goes into this emergency mode and shuts down your ability to, you know, almost even have emotions, sometimes move your physical body. And in this emergency state, you have these hormones, your biochemistry changes, and you have these hormones for fight, flight, or freeze. So in that moment, you might not have access to even aspects of your personality. So um, the the body's natural way of clearing both the psoas contraction and the fight, flight, and freeze hormones is to shake. And animals, and also humans, but animals, we see it more obviously because they don't have the domestication and the cultural conditioning to not shake. Um, you can see them shaking when there's you know fear or a traumatizing situation. And humans, um, for whatever reason, in the majority of cultures, it seems, um, we don't shake. We hold that back, that natural inclination mm. to shake. But that's actually what clears the hormones from our system and is one of the main tools that I use to clear PTSD from my system was to do shaking both when I was having an intense re-triggering experience and just on a, as a daily practice to clear the longer-term uh, biochemical effects of trauma. Mm, I see. So in essence, um, the repression, the suppression that we that we impose upon ourselves in the simple sense that we don't fully release these these hormones, uh, we don't fully release these these fears, if you will, these traumas, mm -hmm. they 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 build up in the body and just kind of become part of it. And we have these these coping behaviors, ways of dealing with it, opposed to just like you just said, like shaking it out of you. Yeah, definitely. And what it, it does tend to build up and um, you can, it, it can cause insomnia, can make it hard for the body to relax, um, to fully relax. I noticed for my, for myself, I basically had constant tension in my body and I would even like laying down trying to relax, like my legs would feel tense. Um, so so yeah, it can affect um, sleeping, your ability to relax, and it also just causes low-level anxiety, and a lot of panic attacks are very related to PTSD. And if you already have a high level of um, fight, flight, freeze hormones in your system, then also any additional trigger um, can be, you know, incredibly amplified um, because you're not starting at neutral. You're starting at, you know, maybe 50% of kind of like a, a low-level panic attack always happening. Yeah, this is really good. I love this. Um, so kind of what's coming up for me in that, that context is there's obviously a variety of lifestyle tools, cleaning up the body, cleaning up the mind, um, in the work, in the, the, the other, um, somewhat more subtle, um, but profound insights that you're sharing and are going to continue to share in the work that you do. I want to ask you for you and, and the people that you've come across, what are some of the lifestyle related, um, things that you've seen help people, uh, I guess, integrate that this work? Mm. Yeah, great question. So, uh, one of the tools that I used was I um, made a little card, almost like a business size, um, business card size, and I wrote down the four steps that I needed to do anytime I was triggered. Um, partially, the, the reason I needed to write it down was that when I was in a triggered state, I didn't have access to the part of me that necessarily even knew that I had PTSD mm. or knew what a trauma trigger was or knew that there were things I could do for it. That's actually something that I, I needed to train myself over time. So initially, um, you know, it could be a certain touch. You know, since my uh, trauma was in particular in an abusive relationship, in an intimate relationship, then that's um, the context through which I could be re-triggered. I wasn't just triggered by, you know, men in general, which does happen for some women, but needed to be when I'm in a romantic relationship. So I remember even just having um, uh, my, my partner after the abusive relationship, like, touch my back, and then I froze up. Mm. And I didn't... Um, yeah, I didn't have access to the part of me that knew what was going on, and I might have that uh, have had that trigger for three days before I was able to get out of a triggered state, especially for the first year when I didn't know what PTSD was. And then over time, 
as I was using these different techniques that I'm going to go into a little bit more in a minute, um, then I would go maybe from a three-day trigger to, um, well, even in the last year, there was maybe just two, and they lasted for all of, you know, five minutes um, because of the continual release in these different techniques. So having that little note card really assisted me. And so uh, maybe after a month or so, I'm not sure exactly how long it took me to um, be able to recognize maybe after, you know, five or six hours of being in a triggered state, oh, I'm in a triggered state. So then I was able to access that part of me that could have that self-awareness and then, oh, I'm in a triggered state. I need to, I, I can do something to get out of it. Oh, there's those four steps I need to do. And then, oh, the first one is rescue remedy. However, even I, I had a couple of moments where I would sit in the room, know I needed to get my rescue remedy and not have the capacity to stand up and walk to the other room and get it. And so there was a lot of um, self-acceptance and self-forgiveness about where I was at in my capacity to do what I needed to do for myself. And then eventually, you know, I was able to, to recognize I was in a triggered state, know what the four steps were, and actually move my physical body to go and do them. And another reason I put it on the card was that was easy reference for my partner at the time, and I made sure that some of my close friends knew um, so that if they saw me in that type of state, then they could ask, you know, do I have my card with me? Or they could just remind me of what the four steps were. Um, so the first step being a rescue remedy, which is the box flower remedy, um, really calms. Uh, you know, it's really incredibly effective. I've actually used it in a lot of um, other scenarios where I'm supporting people with trauma. So it can be in lossage form or it can be underneath your tongue in tincture form. So I'm taking that first. And the second step being drinking some water and then doing some deep breathing and then doing one of the exercises that has your body shake. In particular, the ones that I used were having my leg shake. Um, and then that would help me come back to myself because, you know, PTSD retriggering is probably the scariest experience I've ever had. And in the way that I think about it, it's scarier than death in that it's the ultimate separation from my, my experience of being a divine uh, being, the ultimate separation from life and from my own soul. Um, I, I would lose all sorts of sense of care for myself or anything else, and I would feel numb, and I even a couple of times would dig my fingernails into my arm just to feel something, because it's, it's this complete disassociation from being alive. Mm. Um, yeah, so doing those four steps when there would be an acute you know, re-triggering, which again can happen, which happens through the sensory system. Um, there's a couple of times I was able to... Not that I was trying to, but that I would re-trigger myself through memory only rather than having a sensory stimulus. Um, however, the majority for me were sensory. Um, and regardless of being triggered, I also would do the exercises in the evening to help my body you know, release anything that may have happened throughout the day and also any of the long-term, longer-term uh, biochemical effects. Um, Another practice I would say was to, I rewrote the story of the abusive um, relationship from my higher soul perspective of why it was important um, for me to go through that as a catalyst for my awakening and my deeper understanding of what it means to be human and, you know, the mental illness component, the emotions, the mental mastery, the confidence and, um, one of the reasons why I needed to rewrite that was so that I didn't use the power of storytelling against myself mm -hmm. to then decide that, that I was broken and there was something wrong with me. And yes, those things still happened, but much um, drastically reduced because of the new story that I wrote. Um, so I wasn't perpetually self-punishing on a conscious level. There was still an experience of, oh, I'm, yes, I'm broken or I, you know, lost self-respect. I lost self-trust. Um, and the, the piece around broken, it was actually just in the last couple of years where I had this moment that I was claiming, you know, I'm whole. I don't need to, to do a bunch more healing or even have this concept that there's something wrong with me that I need to fix. And, um, it's more so that I can claim my wholeness and be in this total self-acceptance and self-love, um, of who I am in this moment and also of what the world is rather than 
feeling like there's something lacking and I need to fix it. And I watched um, myself shift from I'm whole despite still having PTSD, you know, that can be triggered sometimes um, to instead being I'm whole with that. And, you know, like when we get a scar, like I have, you know, scars on my feet from surgery or people like jump off a cool cliff and they get some scar and they show it off. And it's the opposite with PTSD. We have these inner scars and we try to hide them. We don't want people to know about them rather than claiming that we're whole within having those things and that everybody has, you know, something we're all um, here evolving and there's, there's beauty in, in the trauma and the journey. Mm, There's so much gold here. Uh, I think what wants to come through me right now is this quote from Terrence McKenna, which is the universe is constructed in stories. Mm -hmm. And, um, what I was just thinking about was a past experience. Probably most people have no idea about this part of my life, but I grew up as a very traditional martial artist and, when I was about, when did this happen? I was about 21 or 22. Long story short, um, me and some Taekwondo brothers were out celebrating in Japantown, <laughs> of all places in San Francisco. And we were at this bar until like two in the morning. Obviously, everyone is uh, under the influence of something. And uh, we ended up getting into this big brawl you know, with this group of people just out of nowhere. And it was one of those things that it was like a flash, like you can't predict or anticipate it just like flashed. And then all of a sudden we're in this huge ordeal. And long story short, four of us got sent to the hospital um, with knife wounds. Mm. And I have this scar on my neck of where I got uh, almost stabbed. Mm-hmm. And it was this whole thing, right? And I'm just, I'm just reflecting on that, that situation because somehow I didn't carry some trauma, like emotional or mental trauma or any kind of shock. It was just kind of like it happened. Mm-hmm. It got stitched up. I went on with my life and it didn't seem to affect me afterwards. And I, I, I have to somehow relate that to the fact that I didn't create some storyline around it or why did this happen and and what this means like I just went on with my life and there's obviously a lot more to that kind of circumstance but that's just what it made me think of because I feel that scar on my neck and it's an inch away from the artery it's -hmm. like wow that was like a really close call but the story actually the story I have about it was um God saved me God Mm -hmm. God gave me um, an opportunity that so many people I know growing up actually didn't get that opportunity. So that's actually, I think, the underlining story that came up for me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and that's definitely one of the most empowering stories you could have chosen, you know, to create from that scenario. And that's um, that's beautiful. And, and it really does come down to um, how we interpret it, so what meaning we give it. So I, I had the opportunity to either decide that, um, what it meant about me that I was in an abusive relationship, you know, was that I was insecure, I was irresponsible, I was foolish, or, you know, whatever it might be, or I don't stand up for myself, or, um, and it, it, it did take me a little while to integrate that it happened, because it was so far from the identity that I'd already crafted, so mm-hmm. I kept telling myself, but, but I'm not the kind of person who would get in an abusive relationship, but I was, and so I had these like conflicting stories about it and needed to come to terms um, with what did it mean. And that's where looking at it from the higher soul perspective was really supportive for me to be able to integrate it. And it sounds like similarly you're looking at, you know, that story around the, the knife um, wound from the perspective of, of your relationship with the divine. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel as though um, when I look back on my life, it's like a movie reel and everything lines up perfectly. And I can see actually the natural progression. But in the thick of it, when you're moving forward and you don't have retrospect, oftentimes um, it can be hard to make sense of things. And we often ask ourselves, like, why me? Why would you know, why would God do this or, or, you know, whatever the story is, right? Um, so I've personally constantly gone back into my memory data bank to excavate insights that would help me become um, a better man, essentially. Mm-hmm. 
for sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, the storytelling piece is also something, I think one of the reasons why I recognize the power of it right after the abusive relationship and why it was so important for me to write um, a, an empowering story about what happened was because I was really looking at what kept me in the abusive relationship, and it was the stories I was telling myself while I was in it. And that became a, a recent passion of mine is actually to create a document cataloging all of the thoughts that I used to convince myself and to justify staying in the abusive relationship. And I also did some some crowdsourcing on that and had about you know 20 or 30 additional people add to that list. And um, I'm going to create a free resource of that because um, already there's been some really profound experiences for my clients when they read that list and recognize that they're using those same thoughts against themselves and just to for them to know that it's um, something that millions of people use to keep them, you know, those thoughts are something that millions of people use to keep and keep themselves in abusive situations, helps them awaken to the falsity of those thoughts. Mm, beautiful. beautiful. I think we've let, we've laid out some really incredible groundwork here. And um, where I'd like to take this conversation is something that we all contend with to different degrees. And I think it's very um, lined up with everything that, that you've shared. I want to discuss the concept of resistance and how the quote-unquote self-saboteur uh, wiggles itself into our unconscious patterns and to just kind of um, give a little more detail to what I'm getting at. Um, I remember reading uh, the book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I think I read that so many times because it was basically on this idea of resistance and the difference between um, what we would call like an amateur in contrast to a professional, right? And and how do we navigate the waters of our own resistance to do the things we know how to do, um, mm-hmm. but what blocks us from actually doing it? Hmm. What blocks us from doing the things that we know would be good for us? Is that what you're... Yeah, basically, yeah. And that resistance that we have towards it. Mm-hmm. Resistance to it. Okay, so I'm going to put it in the context of... Um, like creating a new habit mm-hmm. that we know that we that we need to create. Would that be um, helpful? Is that what you're looking for? Basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's see. I'm, so I'm going to take a personal example. Um, hmm. Yeah. So th- I'll just take the example of I, I set out to do 40 days of cold showers in the morning, which is part of the Kundalini mm-hmm. yoga practice. And um, when... Uh, you know, any anytime we set a goal, basically we're we're magnetizing um, anything that might get in the way of that goal, um, so that we can clear it and achieve our goal. So at the time, what I was noticing with myself was that all of the voices in my head are coming up with all the reasons to not take the cold shower, and so for me, overcoming resistance has been greatly assisted by reminding myself that my mind is the most convincing liar out there (laughs) and that the mind is naturally set up to keep things the way that they currently are. Mm. And of course, then we get the same results that we're currently getting. So we want to get different results. We need to um, have more energy than the lies that the mind is telling. And so if it's a lie that the mind has told you and that you have believed thus said yes, you know, said yes to and energized for a couple of years, you're going to need to have more energy than that belief. Like the energy that, um, let's see, energy that you, (laughs) you're going to need to have more energy, um, than how much energy you've put towards that belief on Mm -hmm. a conscious or subconscious level. And especially if it's a belief that, or a habit that you've, put energy towards that you've believed for, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years. Um, so to be able to override all of the mind's ideas, you first need to have the, the paradigm that your mind is, um, full of lies and beliefs and ideas. None of them, well, I would say like 99% of them aren't provable to be true or untrue necessarily. Um, so then you can make that conscious choice of what you want to be true. So to first create that separation that you're actually the one who can direct your thoughts 
Um, and then to have lifestyle practices that give you more energy, especially before you're going to do that practice. So, um, having something, for example, at the time I already had a meditation practice, so I was going to be that much more likely to get into the cold shower if I did something that I didn't have as much resistance to, but gave me energy and power. So I meditated before trying to take a cold shower. I have more energy to override the excuses that my mind's coming up with as to why to not do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yep. then having the structure of a commitment and knowing why you're committing to it, having a really strong motivation and passion as to why I wanted to do the 40 days um, of cold shower, which to me was like a really strong belief about the results I was going to get um, and why I needed to do it. That also um, assisted me in being able to do it. And I noticed, I think it was about 10 days in that, well, I mean, each day the voices got quieter and quieter because I wasn't listening to them. I wasn't energizing them. I was, I, I was using one to three additional um, sentences that I was repeating about why I was going to do it. Rather than trying to not listen to the excuses, I was reprogramming consciously that the voices were going to tell me something different and going to be empowering instead. And then I think, you know, maybe the switch was about 10 days in where the voices started to be on my team and almost become like motivational coaches and give me the reasons why I wanted to do it rather than try to have me not do it. Mm, yeah, that's, that's perfect. And I, I grew up in the success philosophy world from a young age and really took on to all that information. And that really kind of laid out um, a foundation for my psychology. And I totally line up with everything you're talking about, and especially when it comes to the practical application of some of these ideas that can seem a little philosophical in nature, can seem um, even for some people a little far away. But mm-hmm. then really, you know, simply explaining that it's, it's essentially an overriding or it's a, a reprogramming process. Mm-hmm. And that you're, you're essentially, um, what I like to say is, it's kind of like um, subtraction by addition, that instead of creating a void and, and depriving yourself of something that you've done, you're bringing in a new energy to, to integrate into your life. Um, you know, from a scheduling perspective, it's mm-hmm. like, well, how do you do all these things in a day? It's like, well, you have to, you have to, you know, you have to get a broad view. You have to see all the chess pieces on the chessboard and before you're able to make a move, right? So once you get clear on what's on the table, then you can get into it and start putting new habit patterns into there. And eventually, the new outweighs the old because you don't have enough time or energy to accommodate the old patterns. Does that kind of line up? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a component of it. And then it, um, another major piece for me has been how I treat myself if I don't do the thing I said I was going to do. Ooh. You know, it's like uh-huh. the, really the self-talk is what determines whether we have confidence, whether we have energy, motivation, and whether we perpetuate our current habits or not. So if the self-talk piece is actually coming from an empowered state rather than, okay, oh, wow, I didn't take a cold shower this morning. I'm going to judge myself for it. And right. decide it means all of these horrible things about me and then spiral. <laughs> um, you know, then I'm depleting my own energy to make a change the next day because self-judgment is one of the most effective ways to reduce your own energy on a physical um, and emotional and energy level. Um, so it's almost creating a, a pact and also creating a practice around any of these, you know, what might be perceived as mistakes and instead that there are opportunities to just, you know, really literally just say oops and move on rather than, uh, you know, a, a constant degrading and um, lowering your energy field through your thoughts and your self-talk about this one thing that you didn't do. Mm, that that's so brilliant. I love that you brought that in because that's kind of the other end of it is, you know, I, I really feel like most people are empowerment seeking or they're desiring and everybody is, is living their life um, according to a certain value system and they're trying to line that thing up with what they, they believe to be true. Um, so it's very easy to become judgmental um, of others, but of ourselves when we don't do something that we think is going to line us up with, I guess I'll just use the word authenticity of what mm-hmm. we're trying to be and pursue in the world. A lot of times I know for me, 
Um, not so much anymore, but it had been something where, and very masculine energy of like black or white, you know, like, okay, if I don't do this, that I've, I've set out to do, it means that I don't have self-discipline. It means that I'm not the master of myself. Therefore, um, it, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, a low energy, as you put it, story going on, that's actually robbing me on the back end to, that would allow me to make a better decision tomorrow. Right, exactly. Yeah. The more you judge yourself for something, the less energy you have to do anything about it later. And and then it also comes to the inherent motivation for that change. If it's um, if it's a perpetuation of the, I'm not good enough, and I'm trying to be good enough for myself by doing these things, um, that I've, I've never actually seen that to be effective because it's just yeah. a self-perpetuating cycle. We never become good enough <laughs> by meeting this, you know, criteria that we've set out on some sort of um, list of conditions for self-love. Mm. We become good enough by shifting out of the program of not being good enough. I love it. Um, okay. I want to ask a question. It's seemingly out of left field, but I think you're capable of uh, handling this one. <laughs> Um, and it's a question that not many men ask, but I'm, I'm wanting to get the answer on this one. So the question is, what does it mean to you to be a woman? Like what, <laughs> that, right? That's like, whoa, what was that? Um, like I'm, but it's a, okay. it's a sincere question. Like, what yeah. does it mean to be a, a, a woman? We could say an empowered woman, but I just want to know the essence from you. Like, what does that mean? Hmm. Wow. Okay. Let me, let me. Tune in with because it, let's see if we can give it a little bit more context. Um, what does it mean to me to be a woman? Well, I, one of the things that it you know means besides the you know anatomical experience yeah. and the that there's um, an experience of um, a rhythmic nature of life. Mm. So you know. Th- basically be you know being affected by the rhythm of the moon and then having our menstrual cycle being a rhythm um that's something that's very natural about being a woman um and i i have chosen to to experience and navigate life through the the paradigm of there being masculine and feminine energy and that we all have both within um and that doesn't mean, however, that I think that all women um, have more feminine energy. Um, I think that some are have a, a tendency to be more in their feminine, and some that would be their natural tendency, however, due to you know culture and some of the the unfortunate effects of feminism. There's some great effects of feminism, and some of the unfortunate effects of feminism are over masculinating themselves. Mm. Uh, so let's get, let me see and get back more to the question. So I, I think you're tuning in exactly where I was. I was mm-hmm. wanting to point the tuning fork is is okay. um, I you know and just to provide a little more uh, detail to why I'm asking such a question. It's like I I see things holographically and I see all the data points or the I guess you could say seemingly diametrically opposed ideas that are put out there in the the space and I mm-hmm. see more and more how they actually connect. And so what I'm getting at is the essence that or the energy that we carry as quote unquote men or women, but more like from even a Chinese perspective of yin and yang. Mm -hmm. And in our world, it's a very masculine dominated world. And I don't mean a man dominated. I mean, energetically, it's a very assertive. It's a very like, if it's going to be, it's up to me kind of thing, right? I'm going to like go out and make things happen. But there's another counterbalancing force in the universe, which is grace, ease, flow, manifestation. And I attribute that to the, the, the flow of the feminine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I see that, you know, in terms of the arena masculine and feminine, so if we're speaking more in that context, um, and um, again, I, I do feel like there's, the majority of men have, um, it would be their natural state to be a little bit more in their masculine and women a little bit more in their feminine rather than a 50-50. And, right. you know, each person, that's going to be very unique to their soul's evolution and what's what really is natural and authentic to them. So, um, But if we look at it simply in terms of it being a masculine and feminine energy, I see that there's... Um, 
I guess you could say a a lower vibrational expression of the feminine and lower vibrational expression of the masculine and also higher vibration of both. And then we have this opportunity to evolve our expression of the masculine and feminine within such that it's coming out in more of the higher expression. So um, feminine energy to me then would be um, rhythmic, um, expansive, um, can also be scattered, it's inspired, um, it's connected, it's um, definitely yeah connected to everything. There's a flowing energy, there's creative energy, sensual energy, um, hmm, let's see, the... There's a lot of aesthetic beauty and kind of like the natural feminine. Um, and I'll probably add more to that when I talk more about the masculine. But the masculine, oh, well, there's also the beingness mm. and the restingness. And, um, and then the masculine being more, you know, the systems, the structure, the action, the doing, um, the organizational piece. Um, and if if we're imbalanced, it's going to be... Um, well, there's the imbalance within, and it's also how we, you know, relate to our business. For example, if you're imbalanced in the masculine in your business, you have no spaciousness for magic, really, mm-hmm. because everything's over systemized and over scheduled, and needs to be just this exact um, way. And there's so much action that there's no magnetism. The feminine is a magnetism. Mm-hmm. Or you could be overly in your feminine, in, um, in your business expression, which means you're really magnetic, and you're really flowing, um, but you don't have the systems in place. So let's say you're, you know, if you're a coach, for example, then you, know, you don't have the systems in place where somebody might be really inspired by you, but you don't have a way to actually enroll them as a client or a way to track their progress, or a way to give them feedback, or you don't have your accounting set up, and it's, it's just really messy. You know, it's a, there's a lot of scattered energy and you might be super inspired one day, but you have like 20 projects you're inspired with. And mm-hmm. so you don't have to go anywhere because you're scattered and confused. Um, and there's, of course, you know, the intuition being some of the feminine, uh, a feminine trait. Um, and um, yeah, so what, what I see in terms of just the reason why I'm looking at it partially through the feminist um, lens and context is because I just was part of the sacred sisterhood and global sisterhood women's circles happening all over the world and international women's day and international women's day is so um, linked to feminism and, and equality and very, very much been looking at that lens of, okay, feminism was great. I'm so deeply grateful for all of the work of all of those women. However, part of that movement, and I, and I've chosen to trust that it needed to happen this way because it did. Um, however, part of that movement was women saying, we're going to be more powerful because we don't feel powerful and we're going to be more powerful by becoming more like men. (laughs) And rather than we're going to be powerful as women. And it's, it's pretty fascinating to look in, you know, in relationships and how are relationships now affected by the, the woman basically acting like the man and then where's the man's place because sometimes they're really strong in the masculine and then how does the man show up in a relationship if, if there's no place for the man to be the man when the woman's being the man, which I was very good at. I did many of my relationships that way. Um, and now I'm actually learning and practicing and, and resting and being able to be the woman in a relationship. Mm. Um, and also doing that in, you know, in business. Um, and how does that affect, you know, when there's two women, uh, two people together and they're, they have children and then, um, they're, who's doing the, the mothering and the nurturing, which, you know, may naturally be a woman's role and it may not for some people. Um, but it, it's pretty fascinating to me at this moment, of, um, the plethora of cultures that, um, are really seeing, um, this, uh, pretty intensely. I was just in China and the women in Shanghai, this woman owns like the Shanghai, um, you know, a, a major car company in Shanghai. And we were talking about how, you know, her and many of the women she knows are really masculine. They want to get back in touch with their feminine and be able to lead from a feminine grace rather than try to be powerful by being like men. And the same as a guy I met who's from Slovenia. And he's like, you know, my girlfriend is um, going going to get this degree so that she can go and have a job. And he's like, I don't want to have a relationship with, with, um, 
someone who's like me. I, I don't want to have a relationship with somebody who's trying to make a bunch of money and really focus on all of that. I want to have a relationship with a woman who's going to bring beauty and going to dance and to bring the feminine. Um, so you have been, you know, the, this um, discourse has been really alive in the majority of my interactions for the last few months. I'm very fascinated at the moment by it. Mm. Absolutely. So am I. And uh, a lot comes up out of that. What I was thinking about <clears throat> is, you know, we this this has been a little more of a consistent conversation. I just had John Gray, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus mm-hmm. on uh, a week ago. And I also just gave a lecture in Kauai on hormones. And it was interesting because, you know, I'm very patterned to really go into the the science and all the, the you know, all the obviousness of that. But then I started really bringing in this idea of stress, and how women and men are biologically and physiologically designed to take on or not take on stress in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fascinating looking at the feminine, um, the feminist movement and seeing the nuances that you brought up. And the, 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 what I see is that a lot of women, um, they, they take on that, that, that um, I guess, that motivation to rise up in society, equality. But what, they, what a lot of people don't understand is that women aren't actually designed to handle the same load of stress as men are. Hmm. Right. Like it actually it actually physiologically breaks a woman down quicker if Mm. she is contending with too much stress the same way a man does, because men, you know, just very simply put, um, we we are designed to take stress like we Hmm. alchemize and transmute stress much quicker in a lot of turn in a lot of ways as long as we have the 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 things set up so for example as a man i know like if i'm if i'm in a relationship say something triggers me i have a hard day um my immediate go to isn't necessarily going to go to that woman and just profess all the stuff going on right it's like i've kind of acclimated to my inner process and i'll go by myself i'll mm-hmm. seek alone time and solitude to process with myself first to get clarity and then maybe I'll I'll then have a really calm and sweet conversation with um you know a woman in my life or something right mm-hmm. where sure. I know that for women women really really thrive it seems um when they congregate a, with other women and they can share and communicate that that actually releases oxytocin for women mm-hmm. and, and replenishes that that yin reservoir and so i just think that that's maybe an interesting idea there to br- mm-hmm. to provide like clarity is like um you know i know a lot of women might not um how do i want to say this might not totally recognize the need for support from the other like goddesses if you will mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i but i'm seeing this emergence of like the the quote unquote goddess movement in terms of these these gatherings of women coming together and mm-hmm. i know that's like so much of the work you do so let let's talk about that like uh yeah i just want to open that up yeah for sure and before i get on to the to the women's circle thing i just wanted to to share another way of looking at the, the feminist thing and and it's it's really you know rather than being the, the, the men and women piece it's it's that the culture um, the majority of cultures were very much valuing the masculine like the tangible mm. accomplishments and were in many ways afraid of the feminine and the magic and the mystery and yes um, and then you know it, basically it was being expressed by by the women's inequality piece and saying like oh we, we're going to become more um more powerful not just by being more like men but actually on a deeper level over like valuing the masculine over the feminine and and i have seen that on a cultural level but also just on an individual level and in my with my clients and and i was doing that with myself too of actually feeling like well i'm more important um i like myself more and i feel more valuable and i feel better about myself um, if I am accomplishing more tangible things rather than if I'm, um, being magnetic and being a source of peace and joy and beauty in the world. It's like, that's, that's just not as, as, um, valuable, you know, for the most, for the majority of my life and the way that I was running my day, um, of trying to be good enough. It was always with the tangible masculine things, not with a feminine piece. Mm. Um, so I really am, am grateful that there's, um, so many 
um, wisdom keepers and stewards out there who are choosing to to value the feminine, both you know men and women. And in terms of you know the women's circles, it's it's pretty amazing what we just accomplished on International Women's Day, and um, it's through the organization Unified that organizes global um, synchronized meditations, and they, we actually had a bigger and faster response to this women's circles campaign than any of their previous meditation campaigns. Um, for our first event, we had 650 women's circles in 65 countries around the world um, gathering on the new moon. And we're going to continue again every new moon with a new theme. And it's not that each um, circle is doing the exact same thing, but they're all... Um, uh, converging around the theme and we're all doing the same unify heart meditation. So that's thousands of women doing the same meditation to uh, connect all of these women's circles around the world on that day. And um, I've noticed myself, you know, in terms of, you know, creating the guidebook for how these circles are going and the organizer toolkit, um, there's been a couple of moments where I'm like, oh, I want to make sure that I have really, really important questions, you know, that they can be answering together. And of course, that's important. But of course, the, the feedback from all of the surveys from all of these women, both participants and facilitators, is that um, it's really just so deeply nourishing for the feminine to feel seen and heard. And the transformation comes from the alchemy of the container of a certain you know, a group of women doing a certain amount of time coming together and everything that emerges within that. And that it's not like one women's circle process had much more transformation than another. It's, it's, there is something about that alchemy and I'm intrigued by what you're sharing around the, the hormone piece, you know, on a biochemical level and a um, biorhythm level. It's, um, it's, there's something beautifully mysterious and magical to me about the transformation that happens when, when women sit in circle. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to me too, as all these, these puzzle pieces start to form and converge together. Now I can see a bigger picture, right? That's essentially, mm-hmm. um, what happens. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, and so the deeper I go into the, the health piece, um, it brings up all these things, these metaphysical components, these psychosomatic, psychospiritual components. And I can see now how all these things piece together. And it's quite obvious to me that the number one thing, excluding environmental toxicity and diet, that's throwing people's rhythms off their hormonal symphony is stress. And now, mm-hmm. and, and it's easy to say like, oh yeah, like stress, that's obvious. But then when you understand the science of cortisol is that if your cortisol is riding up too high, your fight or flight hormone, it physically muscles out progesterone out of the, the receptor site or the, the pathway. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. women literally become estrogen dominant largely because they hold too much stress or they're not able to maybe a better way of saying is they're not able to um, uh, transform it or to express it. So it becomes contained in their physical container. Hmm. Wow. And then how do you feel like that, that is affecting the, the emotional piece? Oh man, that's, I mean, I, 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 I feel like I was trained as a human behavioral specialist way before I got into nutrition, just mm-hmm. based on my, my fascination in that field. And that's, you know, when I work with people that have stage three, stage four cancer, probably 80% of the clients I work with and people that follow me tend to be women mm-hmm. um, between the ages of maybe 25 and 45 or 50. Mm-hmm. And so some of these, these things, these aha moments and patterns start to arise when I talk to somebody who um, has been through all the doctors, they've been through the naturopaths, they've been through like the whole litany of, of things, and yet they're still... What, what comes up underneath the rug um, of the physical manifestation of a quote-unquote disease is I notice that there are, there's definitely sexual trauma. There's mm-hmm. repression there for sure. And yeah. then what's coming up as I get into like somebody's heart is they have dreams and desires and, and aspirations that they either feel disempowered to pursue or they've just squandered it for so long that it's created like an identity conflict. And obviously that's going to relate to the emotional upheaval. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. It's like, what does it mean about them that they haven't pursued those dreams? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. What is it? Who are they in the world then? 
Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a it's it's a wild one and I really appreciate being able to go to such depths with you and I know everyone listening is really going to um you know feel that that spark of of insight hopefully arise through them but then also one of the things that you had brought up that that clicked for me was this word of inspiration, right? You need to have inspiration or a sense of motivation to guide your life um, in a certain way. And what, what came up for me is that inspiration is like a spark of genius, right? But that spark needs, it needs a container. It needs like a channel, right? So that's kind of like, for me, just a very simple perspective is like that femininity is like the spark of God. It's Mm -hmm. the spark of a vision that, that, like it's like a mental sobriety that waves over you that shows you what's possible but in order to manifest it you need to have that balance of that that feminine grace and masculine action to really create what you want to create mm-hmm. for sure yeah and and setting up your lifestyle design so that you can be consistently connected to that passion that inspiration yeah. and motivation whether it's um, you know, through having a women's circle or having a vision board that you see every day that really sparks that, that remembrance of why you're wanting to do what you want to do and whatever form it happens to be. Um, but being committed and devoted to continually evolving and experimenting with what is the most effective way to stay motivated and to stay connected to that deeper passion and purpose and truth. Mm. Beautiful. Oh, don't you love time limits? <laughs> <laughs> I do. The masculine container yeah. that, that gives us the opportunity for creativity. I love it. Beauty. Yeah, actually, that's a, oh, that's a really good one, too. Um, okay, so what what would you like to share as a concluding thoughts for everybody? Um, I just wanted to, to offer that I have some videos on emotional mastery. Um, available as a gift on my website and specifically sharing um, how we create our emotions, the five um, and actually the four main ways we create our emotions and then the um, two to three sub main ways, um, including how to not take things personally and how to um, get out of a downward spiral. Um, So I have those videos on my website and beyond that, um, hmm, yeah, just giving sending out a little prayer that in this moment, whenever that happens to be when you're listening to this, that you can take a a deep breath and relax into the experience of being alive with with a deep mm, acceptance of your journey exactly the way it is. And and I I trust your journey, however it's unfolding. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And what are your websites? Um, the best website for me at the moment is emmajuniper.com, and it also shares information about my past and future retreats. Beautiful. And then you also have um, your Kedua product line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Kedua, the kind of the alchemy products that support the inner transformation, is kejiwa.com. I have to say about um, obviously you. What's really brilliant about that that product line is that you have you kind of have the masculine and feminine directive, like with the products. Some are designed, um, not that there there are only four, but they're just marketed as for in design formulated for women specifically, and some for men specifically. And as a man, I um, God, what was the product when I was living in Sedona? I it was like one, it was kind of like, uh, you know, like pine pollen and some other cool things. Um, but it was the, one of the, the, the male specific tinctures. And I have to say, I've been in like the herbal world for so long. This was one of those products that I took and I was like, Whoa, like, Oh, like in a time where I needed that masculine, like trigger you know and I was like oh yes and then I was working out at the gym every day doing my business building it and like I had that that like core primordial energy um come back so you know the and I know a lot of women that freak out about the products Mm, thank you. <laughs> I love that, that you had that experience with the, the vital man. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so you have vital woman and vital man. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vital man, vital woman, aromatherapy, organic perfumes, and then the liquid mineral supplements. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this and sharing this conversation with me. Yeah, it's been an honor and a pleasure and a joy. Thank you. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning into another episode of the official Ronnie Landis podcast show. Like always, the, the, the prime directive, if you will, or the thing to do with any of these interviews that really sparks something in you, obviously you need to listen to this a number of times um, and at different times, you know, come back in a week, come back in two weeks. Like really, that's why we have this content for you and it's totally free on your, your, your iPhone or whatever you're using. Take it with you on a walk, um, you know, just make it part of your lifestyle. And then further than that, whatever resonates with you in these conversations take that as a seed and start planting that seed, like do something with it, right? That's the key is that you take the thing that resonates for you and you start to, you start to nurture it and take action, small actions and see how they, they blossom in your life. So with that said, thank you so much. And we will catch you on the next episode. Aloha.